the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, it has become a part of our American modern vernacular. I suspect even the term is used in many parts around the world. Am I right? If you want some information, want to get some data, you know, there was a day and an age back when we were youngins, Richard, we would go to something called the library, a big building, lots of things in it called books, reference section to get information. Today, what do you do? What do you say? You say, Google it. Absolutely. And, of course, this multi-billion dollar corporation has become a worldwide entity that has provided us not only uh, the tools of research to gain access to almost any website in the world that you like to get information about, uh, but also you can snoop into your neighbor's backyard, you can peep through their front windows with Google Street View and gain all kinds of information. Of course, oddly enough, they're apparently gaining all kinds of information on you, too. By the way, Richard, I noticed your lawn needs to be mowed. I was checking out Google the other day, so, you know, get that taken care of, would you? And, of course, recently we've seen them gathering information that included capturing every bit of data that was traversing across every open wireless network in the country as they went up and down the streets um, taking pictures at the front of your house. And, of course, Google says, all oh, this is all very incident, uh, very incidental and by accident. It was a, quote, engineering mistake. Yeah, terabytes worth of data were just accidentally collected. Well, with some insights on this, Scott Cleland joins us now, author of a new book called Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc. And, Scott, thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. What of this whole thing, you know, we'll begin, I guess, first with one of the most notable uh, intrusions into our privacy as uh, Google was going up and down, traversing the streets, avenues, uh, drives and boulevards of every major portion of America uh, for their street view, gathering not just photographs, but apparently lots of other information that they claim was all by accident. Really? Well, um, it's not by accident when you have when you're doing it in 33 countries over um, a three-year period with hundreds of vehicles. So um, you know their excuse was not that it was a mistake and it was only one rogue engineer that had programmed it, and that's just a preposterous explanation. So we know that they patented the technology, and we know that um, you know there were you know hundreds and hundreds of people involved and. 
if you know, in order to believe them, we'd have to believe they have zero management control and zero supervision. Uh, um, so it's it's they're they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. In their explanation, you spent a lot of time researching, investigating this company based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, fully eight congressional subcommittees have sought your expert testimony uh, on a variety of topics. Um, tell us from your research. Scott, beyond that sense of just being horrifically intrusive into every open and unsecured uh, wireless network in every neighborhood across the planet, what else about this company makes you nervous? Well, um, the big untold story here, Craig, is that Google is a hidden threat to everybody on the Internet. While everybody knows there are great, great benefits, great innovations of Google, they don't appreciate that Google is really becoming Big Brother Inc., you know, um, they're the, probably the single biggest threat to people's privacy and security online. And the other thing that's important to know um, about Google is is that they're not the trustworthy, ethical, and unbiased uh, company they pretend to be. You know, when when I've studied them, it's obvious that they serially disrespect people, privacy, property, and the rule of law. One of the things, and, and folks maybe that uh, that use Google Chrome, for example, uh, as as their search engine, uh, I recently had a computer that was having some problems, and a friend said, well, you know, if you're having problems with Internet Explorer, why not check out Google Chrome? And so I did, found that it seemed to function a little bit more smoother. Uh, and then, it, it, much to my surprise, I found out that not only every website that I visited, but every page that I went to, was being captured there for all to see. And, you know, I'm not doing anything surreptitious or anything that I have to be embarrassed about, so it's no big deal. But the thought occurred to me, well, if this is being captured on my local machine for anybody to innocently walk up to, look at the history, and see everywhere on planet Earth that I've been to, I wonder how much of that data is also being captured by Google and for what purpose? Well, you're you're right. You're talking about the creepy side of Google, and um, they track everything on the internet. Not only everything you do, but everything everybody does. Over a billion people. They're the only company that does this and has the capability to do it. So they're the only entity on earth, really, that knows what you want, what you think, what you believe, what you read, what you watch, and what you intend to do in the future. And they know you better than you know yourself because they do it 24-7, 365, and unlike you, they don't forget. So, in other words, let's say, for example, something fairly harmless and innocent as, um, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, the car's got quite a few miles on it. Now might be a good time to do some shopping. There's talk about vehicle prices going up here, what with what's been going on in Japan and so forth. And so I'm spending time. I'm looking at dealerships. I'm looking at car makes and models. I'm spending time over at, uh, you know, Consumer Reports and other automotive magazines looking for information. Google is capturing all of that information and potentially could, what, turn around and sell it to somebody that might then target me to uh, uh, to try to be, make me become a client of theirs, a customer of theirs? Well, well actually, that's not the threat, because Google's a monopoly. They don't want to you know, sell your information to anybody. They want to harvest it for themselves for um, to reinforce their monopoly. So let me kind of lay out the, the risk to your, your listeners and to, and to you. Uh, but first we have to know, you know, 
um, that Google pushes the envelope on privacy in, in a lot of scary ways. They can track you wherever you go online, and they do it through search, through ad serving, and you may not know that even when you're off Google, any place you go where you go to a website and it takes a little um, second or two for an ad to appear, Google's delivering that, and they have a cookie there, and they know where you've been on that, on that website. And then any time you go to YouTube, Android, you talked about Chrome, uh, an operating system, and they have 500 other products and services where many of them also track you. So they track everything you do online. They also can track you where you're going offline in the physical world. They also eavesdrop on you. That's what you talked about at the beginning of the show. They read your email. They photograph your house like you described at the beginning of the show. And they can even record your face, um, your voice print, and they also want your face print for facial recognition. Let me stop you right there because I suddenly feel like I'm listening to somebody that's reading out of, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, 1984, you know. Um, let me pause there for a moment if we can, Scott, and come back to the conversation because suddenly we've gone from the places that I visit online, that makes sense as I'm doing a search through Google, to so many other activities that are offline, so to speak. Oh, Big Brother is looming. Big Brother cares. Big Brother is here to help. We'll come back as we uh, talk about this topic of search and destroy why you can't trust Google Inc. They're probably monitoring this broadcast as we speak. Back with more. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back with our conversation, Scott Cleland, my guest, Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google, Inc., and uh, this new book uh, dealing with the topic of uh, Google and its long reach that seems to go well beyond uh, anything we could have even dreamt of um, when 1984 was written back in 1948. Um, Scott, you mentioned that beyond simply tracking our online activities, our searches, our, pay, our, our searches, our page hits, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you said that they're also tracking so much more. Elaborate on that, if you would. Well, Big Brother in 1984 just listened and watched. And, um, you know, the, the advent of search really is, John uh, Tell said, it's a database of intentions. Basically, you can t- tell what somebody wants and seeks and where they, what they're really um, thinking that's important in their life is, is um, revealed through search and through some of the other products. You know, where you go on the web and, you know, where you spend your time relatively and, and all that. And so um, uh, they, they know everything about you. As I, as I said, that, you know, they, they, they're tracking everything you do so they know you better than yourself. And um, why is that a problem? And, well, that's a problem because all of that uber profile, that incredibly intimate uh, personal information. And, and I should step back here and say, as we know, there's not a listener out there. We know there's no one on this on this earth that is without sin, that is without something that they would rather that not be seen. And it can be the most minor thing that you're afraid of, you know, a neighbor finding out about something or a family member knowing about something, and you're not worried about anybody else. But everybody has a right to privacy, 
and everybody um, uh, needs privacy for security. So publicly you tell all your friends that you're a big fan of Fox News and secretly at home you're watching MSNBC on the Internet. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's, and, and there's a ton of legitimate reasons why we want privacy. And so what is um, scary about Google is they just don't believe in privacy. But the thing I want to tell, you, uh, tell your listeners right now is, is that Google has this incredible profile that J. Edgar Hoover or any the East German Stasi would have dreamed of having during the, uh, during the Cold War or even any totalitarian, ter, totalitarian government today would dream having that profile on, uh, on citizens because they could then use it to influence them and control them. They, but that information that Google has could fall into the wrong hands in four different ways, and it's happened in all four. The first is it can fall into the hands of a rogue Google employee. And we already have an an example of a Google engineer stalking teenagers using the the, the Google database. It could fall into the hands of a hacker. We know last year that the Chinese completely hacked the entire Google system and stole Google's entire password system. We know from last year um, uh, that, that... they could fall in the hands of, of a spy agency. We know from the Washington Post front page that, um, uh, that Google cooperates with the National Security Agency. We know um, that, uh, because Google has warned us, that uh, law enforcement can get all this information without a subpoena because our laws have not kept up with the due process where, you know, in order to have your phone tapped, they have to go to a judge and get permission. They don't need that in order to get all this stuff from, from Google. Now, that can fall into the wrong hands, and that creates an increased danger for everybody. Well, just ask Sony how problematic this can be. Absolutely. Well, just think about it. This Uber profile, it it creates an increased danger of stalking, blackmail, theft, fraud, kidnapping, intimidation, harassment, or arrest. Now, in a free society, we don't want to have... You know, um, you know, citizens have a, a Orwellian Big Brother Inc. profile out there. It's not what a free country is about. You also made the you know, comment, uh, Scott, that Google is wanting or is, or is attempting to, or maybe has, has succeeded in some cases, of capturing voice prints and facial images, all of this too. So if you're uh, uh, camming or you're doing Skype, I guess, or whatever, uh, they have the capability to capture all of that? Yes. Uh, you have your voice is uh, like a fingerprint. It is um, unique to you, and uh, they collected um, a bunch of them without anybody's permission. When they offered four one one, you know that free four one one phone service. That reason they were doing that. There were two reasons they were. I believe they were connecting, collecting voice prints, but they were also collecting phenomes, uh, phonemes. They were trying to get the sounds so that they could improve their translation. So you have to realize that Google's always using users of lab rats, measuring them and testing them, and they, that's, they just view um, people as data and data to collect in order to improve their systems and improve their our artificial intelligence. And then they also have face prints. You know, Picasso, they, rearrange, they arrange your photos, but most everybody knows that you can identify people through facial recognition so- software. But it doesn't stop there. 
we know Google is investing in fingerprint technology. They would love to get into that as well. And we know they've invested in DNA marking technology, thinking into the future. If you really want to get uh, um, you know, a sense of all the things that Google can collect, I did a one-pager that people could find on the web called uh, Total Information Awareness Power. And if you bing it, you can, you can find it. But there in one page I list all of the things that uh, Google collects. And in my book as well, it lists many of the things that the Google collects. And it's just mind-boggling all the ways they can identify you. Now, uh, is there a URL for that, or should I just Google it to find it? Well, Bing, if you went to, um, uh, um, if you Bing Total Information Awareness Power, that's my one pager. It'll probably come to my blog post, and you'll see there's a PDF there. Not surprisingly, but, uh, you're not recommending that we Google it. You bing it. <laughs> uh, I wonder why I recommend it. I wonder why. I, when we come back, I want to talk a bit, too, about some of the things that we can do to circumvent uh, being a victim of this level of intrusiveness. You know, it, it's one thing, again, for a company to gather <laughs> data so that they can more accurately you know target their advertising things of this sort okay i i get all of that uh you know demographics are very important in the ad game as they say but but the degree to which this can be used and then you talk about surreptitious level in which you know with a government that is trustworthy and wholesome and would never do anything wrong toward its citizenry this can be a uh, uh, something that we would just never worry about I don't know that a government of that sort has yet been invented. Let's take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. This report is brought to you by Positive Coaching Alliance. In Fremont, southbound 880, right at Thornton Avenue, uh, the two right lanes blocked by a big rig carrier on big rig car carrier on fire. It's over on the shoulder emergency cruiser there, taking up some of that real estate. Traffic got a stop from Dyer Street. Multi-vehicle crash in Richmond, eastbound 80, right before Richmond Parkway. Now cleared from the lanes. Traffic got a stop from Carlson Boulevard. In San Jose, southbound of the Guadalupe Parkway, as you approach West Taylor, a crash involving a truck and an SUV, that blocks the right lane, and highway patrol is on scene there. Southbound 280 before Westboro Boulevard in South San Francisco, a metal bar in the third lane from the left. That's traffic. I'm Michael Bennett. Got issues with youth or high school sports? Positive Coaching Alliance can help. PCA, a national nonprofit, offers more than a 1,000 free online resources for youth and high school sports coaches, parents, students, and administrators. Visit PCADevZone.org. Maxwell, the runaway into rescue, great disposition. About nine years ago, he was scratching a lot, and he started losing some hair. My vet, she says, oh, he must be allergic to the chicken. Another vet says, it's the grain. She said it's the weather, something in the air. And then somebody said, D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I have been listening to the Dynavite ads, hearing about different stories of different people, and it just clicked. I got my first 90-day supply, and it took a grand total of two weeks. And the dog stopped itching, the hair stopped falling out. Dynavite is nutrition. And Maxwell loves it. Now he's close to 10, and the Dynavite is a big part of Maxwell's diet. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. And he's a spectacular dog. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
Maybe you've heard about MediShare and you know what it is. It's the affordable alternative to health insurance. But you've wondered, can I really save a significant amount of money on my monthly health care bills? And the answer is an emphatic, yes, you can. You can save a lot of money. Whether it's just for you or for an entire family, MediShare has an option for you. In fact, the typical family saves $500 a month switching to MediShare. And it really is the gold standard when it comes to healthcare sharing. You get free telehealth services. You get a huge network of doctors. You get great customer support. And you get the sense of security that comes from being a part of 400,000 people who share not just each other's medical bills, but purpose, too. MediShare is a community of Christians who pull together and pray for each other, which is very refreshing right now. If you want more info, it's so simple. You can get a price within two minutes. Call 844-45-BIBLE. That's 844-45-BIBLE. 844-45-BIBLE. I have a traumatizing childhood memory of an Easter egg hunt. The big hunt was a big deal in our family, and I have this memory of running and excitedly reaching for eggs, only to have my big brother and sister sweep in and steal them at the last second. It's Ryan, and unfortunately, this is a traumatizing reality our Faith and Family Mortgage Team is seeing from families across the country. Families are finding their dream home, only to have it pulled away by another hunter at the last second. At United Faith Mortgage, we unfortunately cannot scare off the other hunters, but we can very quickly get you pre-approved and make it look as good as possible to sellers. And then, once you do grab that Easter egg, see our story and read how our direct lender advantage can often save your family monthly and lifelong money at unitedfaithmortgage.com. We are United Faith Mortgage. We pay your appraisal fees up to $500. That's out-of-pocket money. United Mortgage Court, Melbourne, New York. Animalist number 1330. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Join Alistair Begg, Laura Story, and Michael O'Brien on the Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise this August. Hello, I'm Alistair Begg, and I'm excited to tell you that I will be joining my friends at Salem Media Group to host a cruise to Alaska. And I'm hoping that you can join me. Alaska, as you know, is filled with glaciers, rugged mountains, and wildlife, a land where God's design and majesty are constantly on display. If you've ever dreamed of exploring this amazing place, now's your opportunity, especially as we'll experience the wonders of Alaska in a community of other believers, and this from the comfort of our first-class ship. The week will be enhanced as my friends Laura Story and Michael O'Brien lead us in worship and as together we look at God's Word for both challenge and inspiration. Join Salem Media Group and our trusted partner Inspiration Cruises and Tours this summer. Sign up now, 855-565-5519. That's 855-565-5519. Or log on to deeperfaithcruise.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Scott Cleland, a look at search and destroy why you can't trust Google Inc. Uh, from a practical standpoint, what does what does Google plan, in your opinion, Scott, to do with all of this information that they are gathering? I mean, you, you've outlined what can happen if it falls into the hands of rogue employees or it's readily hacked that could bring, you know, serious consequences, much as the folks at uh, Sony have been dealing with with the PlayStation hack uh, you know, going on three weeks now. But what about from the standpoint of Google themselves? How are they profiting potentially, or do they plan to profit from gathering all this data? 
Well, we have to explore two different avenues. Um, one is kind of the business, and the other is the, uh, the political. Uh, from uh, a business, you have to realize they are the only uh, Fortune 1000 company with a uh, a political mission. You know, it's not their mission isn't to serve um, uh, customers or to help share owners or service share owners. It's to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So they say they want to change the world, and so um, and they also are not interested in monetizing things. They just want to solve the world's problems. So I call them Tectopians, and uh, um, you know, as a uh, um, you really have to understand what they're all about. And, uh, you know, people wonder why am I so uh, alarmed by Google is, is I think they have lousy values, and I, I completely disagree with their values. The two main values they have is they don't believe in privacy. They believe in radical transparency. Um, they, you know, and what you see with the, with the um, radical transparency is that, that's what the um, what uh, they're trying to do in organizing all the world's information. It includes uh, um, all your private information. Now, the second half of that is is that um, they don't believe in property rights. They believe in redistributing everybody else's information property for free without their permission, and they're the ones that monetize it, and other people um, don't. And so. Um, when you put those two values together, and they're political values, where they believe in radical transparency over privacy, and they believe in um, redistributing other people's property without permission over um, a free market and property rights. When you get that, in the end, if you don't have privacy and property online, you are Google's surf. That is a, you know, that's my, my big political beef with, with Google is, uh, I, I don't think most Americans and most people around the world um, want to give up all their privacy and give up all their property rights. No, I would dare say not. Now, with all this said, as much as Google has become a, a daily habit for so many people around the world, uh, how do we respond? How do we fight back to all of this? Well, um, this is something where you know my my solution in the book is relatively straightforward and, and simple. That doesn't mean it'll be easy. Um, uh, basically, if Google was as accountable and as transparent as they expect everybody else to be, and if they just simply respected uh, people, property, and and the rule of law, I don't think uh, anybody would have major problems with them. Basically, Google is a notorious Scoff law. They're a serial offender of, of privacy, property, and, uh, and and the rule of law. And uh, as you probably have heard, their "Don't be evil," um, you know, credo. Uh, it, it's a joke. It's the lowest ethical standard ever devised. It basically allows anything short of evil. And what um, what um, when you look at uh, how Google behaves and you compare it to the Judeo-Christian ethic and of, of the golden rule, um, they regularly treat people the way they would never want to be treated. They treat people like, you know, data and like lab rats that are to be tested and tracked and, and, and manipulated. And so, um, you know, a big, big problem with Google and trying to hit back is the fact that they're so unethical. But now getting back to what can be done about it, 
um, people need to be aware that Google is, uh, um, you know, they've learned all the benefits, and there are tremendous benefits. I am not, uh, you know, against Google or think Google is evil. I think they're unethical and untrustworthy, and that people need to understand that there are great costs that go along with with the benefits. But basically, it's a law enforcement problem. And fortunately, uh, um, uh, three, on three continents, they're being investigated for antitrust. I believe their monopoly power will be reined in. Um, many countries are, are, are trying to rein them in on privacy. And I think in the U.S., we're going to pass both do not track legislation and comprehensive privacy legislation. And that's probably the, what the most important thing to your listeners is that do not track legislation gets passed relatively quickly. In the meanwhile, we do have alternatives out there. I'm thinking of browsers like Firefox. Well, interesting, careful, Firefox. Uh-oh. Ninety um, percent uh, of the money that Firefox gets came from Google. Huh, huh. Yeah, you didn't know that. They're basically yeah. the whole um, uh, Mozilla Foundation is funded through. Now, to be fair to Mozilla, Mozilla and Firefox have been much better than Google about uh, um, do not track and about privacy concerns. So Firefox has been a good browser, certainly better than Chrome, but people should remember that uh, Chrome, uh, or that, uh, I'm sorry, that Firefox has long been backed by Google. And so um, there is a question mark there. Uh, you mentioned Bing earlier. Bing, of course, nothing to do with the Cherry or Crosby, is associated with Microsoft. And a lot of yeah. people look at Microsoft as another pretty huge big brother. Well, um, you know, Microsoft has a different model. And, uh, you know, Microsoft and Apple, where Google maligns them and, and other people look at them now and, and are worried, um, users have to remember that users and customers actually pay these companies, like Apple and Microsoft. Um, they get paid directly by the people they serve. And that is completely different than, um, than Google. Google claims to work for users, but it doesn't. It makes all of its $30 billion monopoly money in... Uh, you know, from advertisers. And my one of my largest beefs with um, with Google is not that they advertise. Advertising's um, a perfectly legitimate uh, business. That's how um, your radio station uh, um, makes a living. But the problem with Google is they're not forthright. They are not honest. They do fairly represent what they do. They represent that they're only interested in users when they work for. They have a conflict of interest and they work for um, for advertisers. And so um, a lot of what needs to be done with Google is just making sure they forthrightly represent themselves to the public so that people know that, you know, they can't trust them like they thought they could try to trust them. Wow. And in terms of the reining in, as you say, that may be done by legislation in the end, how complete, how effective do you think that will be, or do we really have to really protect it and watch it ourselves well i definitely think we need to watch it and protect ourselves and i and i'm i'm an optimist in the sense that i think you know the democratic system a free market system with uh um uh, with law enforcement and with a vigilant populace that most of the google problem can be addressed but people should realize it's going to take a long time and um uh and google is a serial scofflaw they are very clever about how they um, they pat people on the head and say, oh, we care about privacy, we care about security, we care about property, move along, there's nothing to see here. And then they go on and do what they were going to do before. And so 
the law enforcement challenge going forward is going to require extremely vigilant, repeat, repeat, repeat law enforcement from um, from the government on on, you know, on all fronts. Because uh, you know, Google as a culture has a scofflaw culture. They think they're right. They think their values are right. To give the, your listeners an example of their political values in that action is when WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, released all those um, uh, top secret cables and confidential information and and you know uh, information on confidential informants for law enforcement and for our intelligence services, they put tremendous lives at risk and the national security at risk tremendously. Now, publications like the Post and New York Times or whatever, they um, uh, were careful about what they released. Some people may quibble they released too much, but they redacted a lot of information and they didn't release actual documents. Now, um, uh, when uh, companies decided they didn't want to be associated, like eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, they decided to put um, a, a 10-foot pole between them and Julian Assange. They didn't want to be associated with that guy at all. He's a criminal and uh, a despicable criminal. And uh, But look what Google did. Google um, uh, basically, their senior management got together, according to um, Schmidt, and they decided they were going to make all those cables and index them so they'd be universally accessible to the world, to all the world's bad actors. So that top secret information, that, those confidential informants, that private information on citizens has been now indexable by al-Qaeda, by terrorists, by hackers, by creeps. It is an unbelievably irresponsible thing that Google has done. But that's because their technology, or their philosophy, political philosophy, is for radical transparency over privacy and redistributing whatever property they find to everybody. That's their techtopian ideal, and I think it should very much scare and trouble people. Information on the web, bing it. Total Information Awareness Power, Total Information Awareness Power, the book called Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc., available through Amazon.com or um, also information through Scott's website, Scott Cleland, C-L-E-L-A-N-D, Cleland.com. Scott, thanks for the time and the education. Wow. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Get a look at um, number one, what's been going on with our economy and whether or not we are really truly learning lessons from the Great Depression or simply poised to repeat them. You know that uh, Ben Bernanke, the Fed chair, um, wrote his thesis study on the Great Depression and the government's role in it and whether or not that uh, helped relieve it or exacerbated. We've seen Ben Bernanke say the U.S. labor market is a national crisis, uh, pointing out that America has close to a 10% unemployment rate for a number of years. Some states like California, 12%. Some regions within California almost double that number. All the talk of stimulus bills and trying to get people back to work through the government dole. Is there any level of hope behind any of this? We've got a guy that's an expert on the Great Depression that's going to make a comparison and contraction between how America responded from a governmental standpoint 
in the days following the Wall Street crash of 1929, the tail end of the Hoover administration, then into the the um, uh, administration of Roosevelt, and then whether or not some of the same mistakes that were committed then are being repeat, repeated again today. A look at the fruits of graft, the Great Depression, then and now. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly, and boldly, nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is Fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Certainly bold and encouraging words for a nation at a critical time that needed to hear words of that sort, and most importantly, needed leadership. In the wake of the events of the crash of 1929 and the Great Depression of the 1930s, there's been much to do about the government's involvement, whether or not many of the steps particularly taken by the Roosevelt administration under the so-called New Deal were the right steps to take, or as some might assert, was the New Deal ultimately a wrong deal? Did it ultimately prolong and deepen the pain of the Great Depression? It is interesting to note that the current head of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, did his thesis on the Great Depression and the government's reaction to saying, as we take a look at the Great Depression, what it meant to be then and what it means now, we're joined by the author of a new book entitled The Fruits of Graft. Now, some might say, wait, Fruits of Graft? No, isn't Craig, don't you mean to say The Grapes of Wrath, the John Steinbeck's a great book? Well, certainly that book, um, sharing the story of the, the plight of the sharecroppers escaping Oklahoma and the Dust Bowl of the 1930s during the Great Depression. Many of the images, though, of that book certainly apropos to this new one, The Fruits of Graft, written by my guest today. He is managing principal and chief economist for Classical Capital and author Wayne Jett. Thanks for being with us on the program tonight. Very happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, let, let's first kind of uh, spend some time analyzing the genesis of these two events. I think a lot of us understand that in the late summer, early fall of 2008, the bottom fell out of the derivatives market, the repackaging that had been going on, the promises of the, the worthiness of many loans that had been made that turned out to be no there there, largely led to the collapse of uh, you know not just the housing industry, Industry, but everything associated with it. What of 1929, though? What what actually led up to a so-called uh, Black Thursday on October the 24th of that year? And how many comparisons can we draw between the severity of that crash back in 1929, Wayne, and where we're at today? Well, let me start by uh, talking about uh, how the crash came about, why it was so bad. Um, a book in 1978 uh, described uh, a very uh, definite, clear uh, co uh, correlation between the days of the great crash uh, and voting on the floor of the Senate, uh, adopting uh, very high tariffs under the 
uh, Spoon-Hawley uh, tariff trade bill that had not yet been enacted at that time. But every day that there was a, a significant vote indicating that uh, the Senate was moving away from free trade and uh, to a protectionist uh, tariff law, uh, there was a, a tremendous crash in the market. Um, there would then be recovery on whatever news there was uh, of the free trade people winning and so forth and so on. Uh, at that time, uh, trade, international trade for the U.S. was only uh, less than 10% of the, the total GDP. So um, in no way did it, uh, did it uh, justify this uh, tremendous crash that we had in the market. Um, I, my research indicates uh, that uh, the crash itself was actually used as a triggering event uh, by uh, very powerful uh, large capital pools uh, who planned uh, the event and used it as a way to, to crash the stock market uh, by doing uh, fraudulent trading in the nature of uh, counterfeiting shares, uh, selling short shares that you didn't own, flooding the market uh, with uh, great numbers of shares, driving it down, and then letting it go back up and then doing it all over again. So this wasn't a big crash. This is the great grab. Uh, no question in my mind. I, I'm convinced that is the case. Uh, because of the additional things that I uh, also discovered in my research, um, all of that kind of fraud lasted uh, from from October 29 all the way uh, into the election of uh, Roosevelt. By 1931, with uh, the fraud in the markets driving capital out and looting it, uh, so much capital was lost by ordinary people uh, in the uh, across the country in the private economy that there wasn't much left. There was a lot of... Uh, uh, production had to be sharply cut back, uh, and uh, uh, by 1931 we had 25% unemployment. Uh, by the end of 1931, uh, international trade was cut by six, uh, by by uh, something like 69%, almost 70%. So a reduction of more than two thirds in international trade. The European countries were hurt even more than we were because their trade was, uh, international trade was something like uh, 25% on the average of uh, their GDP. But uh, what happened uh, then, um, the, the uh, same forces that were uh, controlling the Republican Party at that time and pushing Hoover to do it, uh, Hoover could have uh, stopped uh, the smooth holly with just a word. It only won by two votes. Uh, and uh, he could have vetoed it. Uh, it would never would have happened. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this was a planned uh, uh, collapse of uh, the stock market and a, a, a plan to drive private economy to the sidelines. Uh, that, that's what uh, happened then. Uh, lots of uh, those who could save whatever capital they had when they shut down their plants, they bought gold because as Roosevelt was uh, being elected, uh, there were rumors, uh, strong rumors, that he was going to devalue the dollar. So they were seeking shelter much as, the, much as people are now. Uh, and then in 1932, 
the same forces controlling Hoover, uh, led him to do the next uh, really stupid thing that he did, um, hurtful thing that he did, and that was to sign or propose and then sign a tax bill that uh, quadrupled the lowest income tax rate and trebled the highest income tax rate, uh, all retroactive to January 1 of 32. When uh, uh, at that time there was no withholding tax, and so the entire year's tax bill was due March 15th of 1933. That is why there was a run on the bank, so-called, that we've been told about in early 19, uh, March of 1933. Uh, the run on the banks was the American people having to go to their banks to pay their tax bills. That uh, drained the rest of the uh, capital out of the banks, who were already hurting because of failed business loans. And uh, obviously the, then we had a bank holiday and so forth. But that was, um, those, those were government actions, um, policies, for example, that the uh, Republican Party at that time would not uh, step in to regulate and, uh, and bring justice and law enforcement uh, to the financial markets, um, and then uh, compounding the problem with this tremendous tax increase that uh, with 25% unemployment, uh, it just absolutely put the economy on its back. You know, it's amazing because you think about the manipulation that took place, as you're suggesting, in the markets in 1929. Certainly, we saw plenty of that with the, you know, fog up a mirror, we give you a free house loan. Ah, you make $10 an hour? No problem. Here's a loan for a half a million dollars. You'll pay back the money to us somehow. Uh, you know, that's certainly with rife throughout the, the problem that created the current economic decline. But then you talk about uh, the government's inability to respond in the appropriate fashion and then a force to raise taxes, etc., etc. A lot of this is sounding very strangely much like where we're at where we're at today. If you've just joined us, a conversation with Wayne Jett. He's the author of a new book called The Fruits of Graft, The Great Depression, Then and Now, drawing some very startling comparisons between the two events. And I tell you what, if you think it was frightening back then, you ain't seen nothing yet. We'll dive deeper into this topic as our conversation with Wayne Jett continues. 